Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. This episode of Talk of Iowa first aired in December of 2019. I'm Charity Nebbe. When Richard Louv's book, Last Child in the Woods, came out in 2005, he managed to put into words something a lot of people were worried about, a disconnect between children and nature. He introduced the term nature deficit disorder and truly galvanized a movement. It's been 14 years. Screens have become even more omnipresent in our lives. And fear and dread about how climate change is changing our planet is growing. Louvre is still focusing his work on that connection with nature, and not just for children, but for all of us, because he believes that connection benefits humans and the natural world. His latest work is Our Wild Calling, How Connecting with Animals Can Transform Our Lives and Save Theirs. Richard Louvre is with me now. Hello. Hi, how are you? Wonderful. Thank you so much for talking with me. And what was the spark that led to this book? What made you feel like it was important to focus on our connection with our fellow animals? Well, first, as you mentioned um, uh, you know, Last Child in the Woods helped create uh, a movement that is now international. And the studies that I cited that I could find in 2005, this is a very under-researched area, the impact of experiences in the natural world on child or adult development. I could only find about 60 studies that I could cite, and some were about the disconnect, and most were about the benefits, finally, it was getting some attention in terms of the benefits. Today, that's, that number of studies is now about a 1,000 studies. So part of the good news is that this movement has stimulated a lot more research. It's almost a growth industry now. I noticed, though, in the, in the research about the link between uh, it, uh, nature experience and health, human health, I noticed that almost all of those studies were about green space, about trees, about parks, and natural playgrounds, all of that. And hardly any of them talked about wild animals. Now, uh, domestic animals uh, uh, are companion animals. There's a lot of research, or there are relatively a lot of research about that, but not about the wild animals. Uh, this book is about both uh, wild animals and our companion animals. Uh, but the, the book is also, um, it came out of an experience I had uh, when I was in on Kodiak Island in Alaska. And I was stopped in my tracks by a fox, uh, to my surprise, because I had been walking along, looking at my wallet, finding how much money I had to get home and or to tip the guide. And I wasn't paying attention. I should have been because there are a lot of Alaskan brown bears that would go right through that camp. And so I was stopped in this, um, in my tracks by this fox and it wouldn't budge. And it was looking at me very intensely, a big fox. And uh, I write in the introduction to Our Wild Calling what I saw and couldn't see in its eyes. I, First, I felt like I was looking into a parallel universe. Um, I know that's a lot of, you know, uh, burden to put on a fox, but 
I really sensed something there, a kind of intelligence that wasn't human intelligence, but I sensed that. I sensed something between me and the fox. And I, I, I was also wondering, is this a fox rabbit? Is it a problem? So I, I waved to the fox. It's three feet in front of me. And I said, you want to come with me? I'm going up to the lodge. And it moved aside and then trotted with me um, all the way to the lodge and then off into the uh, grass. I thought about that. And the way I end that introduction is saying that I can't speak for the fox. I don't know what it was saying or thinking but it seemed to have a message, and maybe it was just pay attention. And those two words, in a sense, are the theme of our wild calling, is to pay attention. When we interact with animals, most of us are, are not scientists, we're not biologists, we're not researchers, but we bring our wealth of experience to any interaction. And so a lot of times, of course, we interpret the actions of an animal based on our experience and how we think. And the idea of anthropomorphism, you know, giving an animal human characteristics or thinking that it has similar thoughts to your own, has been, it's a, it's a very natural thing for humans to do. But in the scientific community, it was completely taboo for a really long time. And the way you write about it, it sounds like you think that the fact that it was so taboo maybe has gotten in the way of our ability to understand animals. Well, I, I do think that. I'm, I'm not alone in that. There's some other major uh, writers uh, who have said a similar thing. Um, uh, even hard scientists, though, will talk about these encounters with wild animals in the way that I did. You know, I told that story uh, about three years ago to a conference of wildlife biologists. It was a North American conference. It was held in Canada. And when I I told that story to the audience, now these are hardcore, cutting-edge, I mean, hard-edged wildlife biologists, very disciplined, you know, anthropomorphism is not a good idea. And I told that story, and I could see heads nodding all the way through the, the audience. In collecting the stories that are in our wild calling about people's encounters and relationships with other animals, um, many of the stories are told by uh, very serious scientists who otherwise would probably not like anthropomorphism. Now, what I'm talking about, though, is not uh, the kind of anthropomorphism that people might think. Uh, you know, I'm not that keen on dressing up poodles in, in uh, birthday hats, <laughs> but that's that's not the kind of anthropomorphism. Uh, Franz DeWall talks about there being three kinds of uh, three branches, in a sense, of anthropomorphism. Uh, anthropocentrism, it's the assumption that you as a human being are at the center of the universe. Anthropodenial is a blindness to the human-like characteristics of uh, other animals. And he asks, are you in anthrodenial? And then the third one is most interesting. That's anthro- animal centrism. And that's an effort to understand and feel what life must be like for a member of another species. Now, we can do that with great limitations. 
but there's a wonderful uh, scientist, uh, Gordon Burkhart, who is, among other expertise, is a herpetologist. He studies reptiles. And he basically says that if you're going to study a snake, you have to sit down and be with the snake for a while. And he proposes uh, critical anthropomorphism, which is what he calls it, which is something I'd like to see taught in schools. The first step of that is conjure up in your mind all of the characteristics of how that snake may be perceiving the world that hard science has discovered. And the second state, stage is to use your imagination. Basically become the snake. Not yourself, but try to the best of your limited ability to sense how that snake is sensing the world yourself. He makes the case, and I agree with him, that when you do that, you greatly increase the chances of asking the right scientific questions about the snake. But increasingly, science and biology in our schools has become about data, not about something that is deeper there, that children, by their very nature, are far more interested in than the data. And children seem to be naturals at it as well. And and when you, I, I think that what I'm hearing when you contrast that, you're trying to use your empathy to understand what it's like to be that animal, as opposed to using your empathy to decide that that animal is like you. Right, right. And I, I know that that sounds like a thin line between the two, but in practice, uh, it, it's, you know, it's those two things are very different. Um, there's a, you know, the story, the, the book, as you know, is filled with human stories that have been sent to me or I've interviewed people uh, of people who have had these amazing often life-changing experiences with other animals, whether it's their companion animals or wild animals. One of the stories is told by, again, another hardcore scientist, an oceanographer, who is uh, among oceanographers quite well-known, even famous. Um, His name is Paul Dayton, and he is at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography in San Diego. He told me a story that is hair-raising. I love telling it in front of audiences because I, I like to see people squirm when I tell this story. Well, and and why, don't, why don't we take a short break and we'll be back and you can okay. tell that story in just a moment. Right. I'm talking with Richard Louvre. His most recent book is Our Wild Calling, How Connecting with Animals Can Transform Our Lives and Save Theirs. He's best known for his book Last Child in the Woods and he's the co-founder of the Children and Nature Network. We will continue our conversation in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. You've been listening to an archive edition of Talk of Iowa from December of 2019. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of Talk of Iowa first aired in December of 2019. I'm Charity Nebbe. My guest is Richard Louvre, and his most recent book is Our Wild Calling, How Connecting with Animals Can Transform Our Lives and Save Theirs. Of course, he's best known for his book, Last Child in the Woods. He's also the co-founder of the Children and Nature Network. And Richard, just before the break, we were talking about um, some of these really incredible experiences that you relate in the book of people and their connections with a specific animal in nature. So not not just nature itself, but these experiences where they have a deep connection with a member of another species. And you were just about to tell us about uh, marine ecologist Paul Dayton and his experience with an octopus. So tell us what happened. Well, he was on the, the bottom of the ocean one day collecting samples. And uh, he, he had scuba gear on, obviously. And he felt something very large come above him and stop. That's usually not a good sign. And he looked up, kind of worried about that, out of one corner, out of one eye, and he saw a tentacle coming down from above. And then he looked out at the other side and saw another tentacle coming down. And then he told me, and telling me this story, uh, uh, he said, now, I, I would be kicked out of a scientific conference of my peers if I, if I told this story to them, because it would be seen as anthropomorphism. But he said this, uh, he looked up and he saw a huge octopus, kind with a 12-foot span. And he said, it decided that I was a clam, and it came down and got me. He was wrapped up by this octopus, huge octopus. And he says, people think that those tentacles are soft. They're not, anything but. And he couldn't budge the octopus. Not only that, but octopuses in their skin have a lot of photons, which are the uh, which help us see, help animals see. It's uh, unclear what they use those photons in their arms for, but in a sense, maybe he would, the octopus was seeing Paul. And the brains of octopus are distributed throughout the body, and each arm of an octopus kind of is independently, uh, has an independent brain. So whatever the explanation is, this octopus was getting to know Paul real well. And he realized right then that he was running out of air and he relaxed. He did what uh, prey often do in the mouth of the, you know, the lion, the gazelle does in the mountain of mouth of the lion. He instinctively relaxed and the octopus relaxed a little bit. And so he took that moment to kick off as hard as he could from the bottom of the ocean. And he starts going up. He and the octopus together, octopus is still attached to it. And they're going up and up and up in the water. And he said that, you know, he's embarrassed to even say this, uh, but I think he said, I think we made a non-aggression pact. And right before they hit the surface, the octopus let go. And um, now there could be other explanations for that, of course, but Paul hit the surface and he ripped off his mask and he looked back down on the water and the octopus was still there. By the way, on the way up, he could feel the razor-sharp beak of the octopus moving around his neck until he could—it was looking into the octopus's eye. So on the surface, he's looking down at the octopus. It's still looking at him. Their eyes are locked for a while, 
And then the octopus, as he says, turns into a kind of a shape of a space shuttle and shoots down into the darkness. What does Paul do? He puts the mask back on, and he chases the octopus down. I said, why the hell, Paul, would you do such a thing? And he says he doesn't have any, he does This is beyond words, he says. Basically, he didn't want the experience to end. He felt something spiritual. And again, he's a hard-edged scientist. He felt something happened there. A connection. And he, and he, and he wanted more of it. You tell the stories about these moments of connection that people have had with wild animals, but you also write a lot about our connections with domestic animals. And of course, that's something that a lot of us experience every day. We feel deep love and connection for our dogs, our cats, or or for other pets that we keep in our homes. And you write about... um, a little boy who was laying on the floor with his dog, just laying there. And he said to his mother, Mommy, I don't have a heart anymore. And she was, of course, shocked and terrified. And then he said, my heart is in Jack. And that was his dog. And I think that's a that's a kind of feeling that a lot of us can relate to, where we have that, that deep, intimate connection with a pet. And, of course, kids seem to be particularly open to that and honest about it. But you, I mean, that's something that, that adults experience too, right? Right. And what I'm saying in part in this book is that this is a feeling that we can have with many of the animals around us and including wild animals. In that case, uh, there is just a sense of permeability of, of a shared connection that is very, very deep. People often feel that with their dogs or their cats. And uh, what if we paid attention to how we feel when we're around wild animals? Um, I make the case, I try to name that thing between the animal and you, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, uh, the great uh, philosopher Martin Buber, I always have to be careful not to say Justin Bieber, um, said, uh, he wrote a great essay called I Am Thou. And he said, basically, you and I don't exist. What exists is between us, the relationship. But he meant that pretty, you know, in a different way than we usually use that word. He considered it a kind of electricity that some people call God. Um, whatever it is, I felt that in my experiences with animals, that everybody who sent their stories to me, one way or another, felt that. And that little boy felt that with Jack. And what is that? Do we even talk about that? And uh, so I've, in our wild calling, I call that the habitat of the heart. I believe that there are two habitats. There's the physical habitat that we pay a lot of attention to, to try to protect, as we should. And then there's the habitat of the heart, which we don't pay much attention to. And we need to. Because if one of those two habitats goes, so does the other. I think that this represents, I hope, the next stage of the children in nature movement, what I've called the new nature movement, but also of environmentalism and conservation. Too much of that is now about data. Nothing wrong with the data. Got to do that. But what about how we feel about the nature around? What about what we sense that is beyond our own words? If we don't value the habitat of the heart, uh, I think environmentalism conservation loses. Uh, 
in because the long we, run. As you've said, we won't protect what we don't love. Right. I, I want to clarify, though, you're not advocating that people go out and try to turn wild animals into pets. Uh, you're no, not, not at all. Okay. So, so what, what are you hoping that people will do? Because those, those moments of connection are rare. I mean, they're powerful, but they're not something you can necessarily arrange. No, um, but uh, you can make yourself available. You, you, you can be where wild animals are. You can also notice the wild animals that are coming through your backyard. One of the ironies is is that as uh, bad as nature deficit disorder is right now in our society, uh, um, more and more wild animals are moving into cities. This poses both danger and opportunity. Uh, So you're much more likely to see a deer in your backyard or a raccoon or even a coyote uh, or many other wild animals than you were just a few years ago if you live in a city, most cities. Even in inner cities, there are coyotes in Central Park. Um, so this is, again, an opportunity. Some of those animals are going to be dangerous, like mountain lions where I live outside of uh, San Diego. But um, that doesn't mean that experience with that animal doesn't have deep value. One of the things I suggest in the book is that people create something uh, something like neighborhood watch in their neighborhoods that would be wildlife watch. And it would be kids that band together with their parents and the the retirees down at the corner, and they watch the animals in their neighborhood. They observe them. Uh, They learn about them. The animals become much more interesting to them. Their neighborhood will become much more interesting to them as they do this. And it will do their health some good, too. Um, And then they would also uh, watch for dangerous animals. You know, the coyote that does look dangerous, too aggressive, and know how to report that. Uh, But they would really work to protect both the animals and the people in their neighborhood. I'm struck so often uh, when I have conversations on the radio about wildlife, um, I'll invite people to participate in those conversations. And I am struck frequently by how much fear there is of wild animals. People, you know, who when we talk about a species and talk about how unique and, and interesting their biology is, then they, I start getting emails about and, you know, you can get this disease if you interact with their feces or, you know, all, all these really things that people are really genuinely frightened of. But at the same time, you feel like you have observed that we are going through a cultural shift in the United States where we are getting kinder and gentler in our perception of animals and our desire to interact with animals. Tell me what you're seeing. Well, both those things are true. You're right. There's a great deal of fear. There's a great deal of not knowing much about wild animals. And this is true in rural areas, too. Uh, There was a study that looked at how kids uh, in rural and urban areas perceive animals. And the rural kids were just as ignorant as the the city kids about the names of these animals and what they did. I don't know if they were as fearful. But there's another study that looked at American attitudes toward nature, and this was within the last uh, three years. And it replicated another study that was done by Stephen Keller at Yale uh, about 15, 20 years ago. 
And what they found is that, yes, people are beginning to soften their hearts toward certain animals that they hated before. Uh, some animals are still not that popular, which I don't understand, like raccoons. I like it. raccoons. I like their bad attitude. But um, I think that this, again, we're going to have to deal with this whether we like it or not because so many wild animals are moving into our cities. And that poses a, a decision. We can do one of two things. We can exterminate those animals, as some people want to do. Or which we, we have done in the past. Or we can figure out how to coexist with them. That doesn't mean, you know, we don't manage wildlife in a city. That doesn't mean that we may have to do some things we don't like in order for one species and one endangered species to survive because sometimes the incoming animals will displace them. Uh, but it does mean we, knew, we need new mechanisms to both protect people from those wild animals but also to appreciate them have them be part of our uh, so, social capital. Why is it we only talk about one species when we talk about social capital? People who love animals around them, whether they're wild or domestic, they're part of their family, part of their extended family. Um, one of the things that is occurring that I write about in the book is the epidemic of human loneliness. Uh, which uh, some uh, uh, medical folks now say is going to uh, outpace obesity as a cause of early death, not because of suicide only, but because of the diseases that come with that loneliness. I think that that is rooted in an even deeper loneliness, which is species loneliness. Um, the urban parks that have the highest benefit for human psychological health happen to be the ones with the highest biodiversity. I don't think that's an accident. I think that we are desperate to feel not alone in the universe. And when we connect with these other animals, when we're aware, when we pay attention, we do not feel as alone. That, the many experiences that I describe, including my own, in which I'm in relationship with that wild animal or my dog, um, I'm not alone. It's, it's literally impossible to be staring into the eyes of a deer as you're on a walk and feel lonely. We're going to take another short break. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm talking to Richard Louvre. His most recent book is Our Wild Calling, How Connecting with Animals Can Transform Our Lives and Save Theirs. And we will continue our conversation in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa. You've been listening to an archive edition of Talk of Iowa from December of 2019. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Talk of Iowa first aired in December of 2019. I'm Charity Nebbe. My guest this hour is Richard Louvre. He's best known for his book, Last Child in the Woods, that came out back in 2005. And he's just published a new book. It's called Our Wild Calling, How Connecting with Animals Can Transform Our Lives and Save Theirs. He's also the co-founder of the Children and Nature Network. And 
Richard, just before the break, you were talking about how lonely our species feels, how lonely we feel as individuals, this loneliness epidemic that seems to be taking place in the the modern world that we've built around ourselves. But also your thought that there's this loneliness as a species as we disconnect from the other species we share the planet with. And you write about a kind of a a super language that that we can use to communicate with other species. I mean, we've talked about that connection that we feel sometimes. I mean, some people call it a spiritual connection, but just that, that connection, you don't feel alone. You feel as if you're communicating, although you're not communicating in the, the way that humans communicate. So what do you mean when you talk about a, a super language? Well, there's an eco-psychologist, uh, Pat Hasbach in Oregon, who has been studying or trying to catalog not only the sounds, but the behaviors and the patterns. She's a big fan of the book Pattern Language, uh, which is about architecture. And she's cataloging those in, in the way that we interact with them, but how they interact with each other, and trying to find the ones we have in common. Uh, in our wild calling, uh, I add to that, and uh, I talk about the oldest language, that there is a language that's been with us you know, forever. I had one of these experiences with eagles on a lake, and I came home and told my son about that encounter, that uh, whoever I say I am, I'm not. Whoever I was in those moments is actually who I am, and I don't have the language to describe that. This is beyond words. Uh, so this oldest language is all around us. It's happening all the time. But we don't pay attention. We don't listen to it or watch it or use all of our senses to pick it up. Uh, there's no accident there are horse whispers. Horse whispers probably are picking up the facial expressions of horses that we most of us don't see. Horses actually have more facial expressions than dogs do. They're second only to humans in this study. Uh, we can't see all of those, but a horse whisperer somehow can because they're paying attention because they're close to that horse. They've come to understand that language. There's a fellow, uh, I also profile John Young, who takes hundreds of people out into the forest to teach them bird language. Again, this isn't um, just the sounds. This is their patterns. This is the way they behave. And people learn this language. Uh, and he says that people go home, and then they come back and report to me that they're getting along better with their spouse. And he says maybe and they've applied what they've learned, learning bird language, to their family. And John says, yeah, they may be actually listening to their spouse. <laughs> so, and Go ahead. You know, in... in in so much of your work and and really this research field that has exploded over the last 15 years, we do learn why our interactions with the natural world are beneficial to us. But let's talk a little bit more about the other side. I mean, the the title of the book is How Connecting with Animals Can Transform Our Lives and Save Theirs. So what's... What's the flip side? How does our connection with other species benefit them? Well, it makes us care about them. Now, it can be very negative, obviously. 
or it can be just Kobe coming, uh, a phrase that I use in the book. Uh, when wild animals move into cities, some of the ones that usually live during or move around during the day become nocturnal because of us. Uh, but they're coming in anyway. Um, so it, obviously we can hurt them. In just a few weeks ago, the New York Times reported a journal, uh, a science journal paper that said that almost 3 billion birds have disappeared from North America since 1970 and 50 years. 3 billion, almost 30% of the birds. Now, we don't notice that because it's happening so slowly over time. But in real reality, it's happening almost overnight. And it's because we're not paying attention to what we're doing. We do need to build more habitat. We do need to protect wildlife from our worst uh, uh, side. Uh, I, I write in the book about the need to adopt a, a new principle that embraces both survival and joy. And I call it the reciprocity principle. If I could read these lines, I'd appreciate it. Sure. Uh, for every moment of healing that humans receive from another creature, humans will provide an equal moment of healing for that animal and its kin. For every acre of wild habitat we take, we will preserve or create at least another acre for wildness. For every dollar we spend on classroom technology, we will spend at least another dollar creating chances for children to connect deeply with another animal plant or person for every day of loneliness we endure we'll spend a day in communion with the life around us until the loneliness passes away you write a lot about you know obviously we technology has taken over our lives in so many ways but in this book you also write about how we can harness that and uh and use it in beneficial ways as we pursue this kind of connection with the natural world. So how, how can technology actually help us in this way? This is not a rejection of technology. Uh, it's a rejection of some technology. It's <laughs> okay, a rejection yes. of, 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 you know, I have a section called the replacements, which is, a, you know, our tendency to want to replace animals with with technology, whether it's our iPad, you know, the animal running across our iPad screen, or uh, actually robots. More and more people buying pet uh, dog, um, um, robot dogs and keeping them as pets. Um, this is more widespread than we know. I'm not keen on that, but uh, and I'm not keen on the kind of technology that does destroy life. But you know, I, I'm looking right now at a mountain across from where I live. It's Vulcan Mountain near Jillian, California. Uh, this afternoon, I'm going to climb that mountain with a partner of mine, and we are working with the Vulcan Mountain Foundation to use trail cams to count the animals, to see what's living up there, to make sure that it's not going away. And this is in partnership with a couple of universities. You know, that's technology, and that is meant to protect animals. And there's a lot of other examples about uh, what we can do with technology to protect them. 
You have a, another term that you use uh, in the book, symbiosine, to describe what you see as a new age or maybe a hope for a new age, an age of connectedness. Can, can you leave us with that vision for the future? Well, sure. Uh, you know, your listeners may have heard of the word Anthropocene, and we're said to be living in the geological you know, uh, era epic of uh, the Anthropocene. Uh, I don't like that word. Neither does E.O. Wilson. Neither does a philosopher in uh, Australia, Glenn Albrecht. Uh, and neither did uh, um, many other folks. Glenn Albrecht suggests an alternative to that. He suggests we talk about the symbiocene, creating the symbiocene, in which we're not at the center of things. That's what the Anthropocene word means. We dominate. We dominate everything. It's all about us. And we'll help these little animals along the way. That's what the Anthropocene is about. The symbiocene is, no, we're not at the center of the universe. We are part of a larger family. We live in symbiosis with the rest of life. And we have to recognize that and find new ways to coexist. And I call that in the book, The Age of Connectedness. And what we're doing is we're, if we go in that direction, we won't have the age of loneliness. We'll have this age of connectedness. When people read your book, I imagine that a lot of us, I mean, the people who are going to be drawn to the book, will see so much of ourselves and, and recognize experiences that we've had and maybe think about them in new ways. But what do you want someone to take away from the book? Is there, is there action that you want someone to take once they turn that last page? Um, I, I think pay attention is the summary of that. Uh, I think we need to look around at our cities, at where we live, at our own interchanges with animals, and protect the animals from ourselves to the degree we can, and uh, protect and, and give the gift of those animals, allow the gifts that those animals give us to enter us, to enter our lives, so that we're part of this larger family. One of the things I've noticed, I've never had this happen with, with another book, People, lots of people are sending me pictures of themselves reading our wild calling, reading the book. I'm getting, I'm collecting them in a file. <laughs> Why did they do that? They've never, they didn't do that for Last Child in the Woods, or at least not very much. But you know, the book hasn't been out very long, and I'm getting all kinds of those pictures. I think what you said, people see themselves in the book, and they realize how deeply they need that connection with their companion animals, but also with the wild animals around us. Richard Louv, thank you so much for talking with me today. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. Richard Louv, his most recent book is Our Wild Calling, How Connecting with Animals Can Transform Our Lives and Save Theirs. This is Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. You've been listening to an archive edition of Talk of Iowa from December of 2019. 